Uh, It's awesome to have theology in our songs and to be encouraged in in the singing. So uh, I I find singing Sunday morning is probably the best part of the service. Of course, I have to work at the other part. (laughs) But uh, It's good to be here. Uh, This morning, we are looking at uh, Philippians chapter 1. Same passage as we looked at last week, actually concluding the sermon from last week. Um, and uh, I want to just start with a story. I want, I want to talk about, we're, we're going to be talking about theology today, a, a deep, couple of deep questions about theology. And, you know, I was really shocked when I went to Bible college, and I discovered that some people in Bible college don't like theology. And I was like, what are you doing here? You know, because I love theology. I love discussing the intricate parts about who God is and how he works and how salvation works and how the Holy Spirit comes into our life, all these different things. I love it. And a lot of times there's differences of opinion. And as long as people are respectful and, and honest, I love talking about theology, even when I when I differ in opinion. And so I loved going to Okanagan Bible College because at Okanagan Bible College, uh, it was a non-denominational school. And so all the students came from all these different de- denominations. And they would have different ideas about theology. And we would be in theology class. And sometimes the, the discussion in theology class will get pretty lively. Especially when you, when you get Pentecostals and Baptists discussing cessationalism and continuationalism. I don't, I don't know if you know what these mean, but, but basically they mean that, that some people, the cessationalists say that, that the uh, gifts of the Spirit, a lot of the gifts of the Spirit ended with the apostolic age, and the continuationalists say, no, no, no they're, they're always going to be around in the church age. And so there's this great debate, and my goodness, it would get heated in that theology classroom. But what, what I loved about it was that as an alliance person, I sided with the the uh, continuationalists, of course, the Pentecostals. But what, what I found was that you had to hone your skills. You had to figure out what you believed and then figure out how to defend it because all these other uh, streams of thought were coming at you and saying different things. And so I, I, I just loved theology class. But what I noticed is sometimes that that, that discussion uh, about theology it would actually sometimes spill over into the, the, the dorm rooms, and we would discuss it long into the night. But what I noticed sometimes is that it was a bit academic, a bit theoretical. And sometimes when life came up against those doctrines that we were discussing, it just, they, they didn't jive with real life. And I remember the day that I realized this. I'll never forget the day when I realized that theology has to jive with real life or it's kind of useless. You see, I was in second year Bible college. Um, my, some of my, all of my best friends actually were in my second year class. There was about 15, 16 of us I remember we were all like 18 to 24, somewhere in that age group, you know, a bunch of 20-year-olds basically. And we all had this conviction about the things of God, and we all we had, we thought a lot of ourselves apparently back then. All 20-year-olds think that they're right and everything. <laughs> That's the way we were. But but there was one guy, Jake Teeson. He uh, he was he was a, a builder. He built homes. In fact, he lived in this beautiful home that he had built himself. 
um, he was married. He was a little older, owned a construction company. And uh, I, I actually, his uh, son, Tyler, was in my, uh, my toddler class that I taught at uh, Kanalona Alliance Church. And, um, and so he was sort of, you know, the mature guy of the group. Um, but so most of us didn't have a lot of life experience. He had, he had some. Um, anyways, the prof, one day the prof had divided up our class into small groups and told us to choose a topic with which to debate. And there was a bunch of different topics that we could choose. And so uh, my friends and I, a couple of my friends and I, chose um, this topic. In the church age, the only way anyone can be saved from hell and admitted to heaven is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Now, uh, that seemed a pretty basic statement for, for a Christian and for an evangelical. Uh, this is foundational evangelical thought. A core concept, driving the alliance, right? Uh, we do missions because this is true. There's no other name whereby you can be saved. It, it's just, that's, that's the truth. In, fa- in fact, there's a scripture passage that basically says this. Uh, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands healed. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name given a name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And, and so it wasn't going to be easy, very difficult to defend this concept. The Bible was pretty clear on the subject. In fact, I was a little surprised that we actually found a group that, to oppose us, that there was an opposing group saying, no, no, that's not a, not a true statement. I was like, I mean, yeah, this is a non-denominational school, but it was evangelical. Uh, and so how many of you would be opposed to this statement? Now, let's put it back up on the, on the screen. How many of you would be opposed to this and say, no, no, that's not right? Anybody? Uh, okay, so how many, how many agree with this statement and would join my team? Let me see hands. Okay, all right, lots of people. Awesome. So we had a strong team. It looks like nobody would disagree with this statement, um, like this crazy team that was coming against us to, to say, no, this is incorrect. Well, the d- debate took place, and of course... The other team brought up this thorny issue of children who died in infancy. Oh, oh yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Now, of course, we as the defenders of this truth, we had thought about this. (laughs) We had had considered it. Um, The other team believed that children, especially uh, children from Christian parents, would be saved. Uh, they, they said that this isn't completely true, that those children don't have to uh, believe in Jesus Christ, that, and they don't have to, certainly they don't have to understand his death on the cross. Um, now, of course, we were ready for this, and we countered with, yes, but you either believe what the Bible says, that you can only be saved through Jesus Christ, and there's no other way, or you don't. And so, the Bible says this is the, that you have to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. So that's that's it, you know, like like kind of a classic fundamentalist answer, don't you think? Like it's what the Bible says. So children, obviously, uh, they must not be saved, I guess. 
there's no other name whereby you must be saved. Clear as day. If you don't believe what it says, then you don't believe the Bible. <laughs> well, what happened next, I will never forget as long as I live. Jake Thiessen stood up. Now, he wasn't on the other team. He stood up, looked me square in the eye, and said, Do you mean to tell me that my firstborn son, who only lived two days, is in hell? <laughs> uh, yeah, that was the end of the debate. <laughs> and the end of my self-righteous academic thinking. <laughs> If theology doesn't fit into real life, it's useless theology. And I'm so glad that the opposing team had a, a rock-solid uh, argument that children go to heaven. And they got that from the Bible absolutely clear. And we totally lost that debate. And I was so glad we did. And so, unfortunately, no one in this room stuck up their hand to say that that was a false statement. But I know it was a bit of a trick. But, but uh, theology has to meet real life. And it has to make sense in real life. And it has to answer the question, if my child only lived for a few minutes, or if my child was stillborn, would he go to heaven? It's got to answer that question. And the Bible does answer that question, but I, I'm not going into that today. Today we're going to be discussing uh, a, a, different, um, a different statement. Basically our topic today is we're going to discuss, is... A medically assistance, medical assistance in dying, okay for a Christian to participate in? And if, if yes, okay, or if no, is it okay to uh, have a do not resuscitate order uh, at the hospital so that they won't do everything they possibly can to keep the person alive? And so these are the two topics that we have today. And I want to stress that these topics have to be connected with real life. I mean, uh, if you're 20-something, sorry, you prob- this probably isn't a big issue on your, on your agenda. But for those people that are my age, who have parents who are dying, or who have died, these issues become real. They, they look at you in the face when there's someone you love is gasping for breath and screaming out in praying, pain and in, right in front of you, and you feel completely helpless while this person is withering away in front of your very eyes, it's a horrible experience, I'm telling you. And, uh, and so this is a, a vitally important subject that we come to this morning. And we're gonna, we start with this passage that we read from last week. And so I'm just going to read it this morning. If you turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, we're going to start with verse 18, halfway through the verse, down to verse 27. And this is what Paul says. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of His Spirit, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that is hap- what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul is talking about his imprisonment and his trial that could end in his death. And we carry on. Verse 21. 
For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is such a powerful statement right there. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Wow, amen, Paul. (laughs) If I am to go on living in the body, this will be fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to be depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will be abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourself worthy uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So last week, we talked about Paul's optimism in the face of this trial, his joy in the face of suffering, his great and solid faith that he, if he died, he would be going to a better place uh, in, with, with Christ in glory. And these certainly are the main points of the passage, which is why I wanted to preach that first. But while Paul faces the possibility of being martyred for Christ, he says a bunch of things related to the end-of-life events from which I would like to launch our today's discussions. In particular, Paul's musing that it would be a lot better to die and be with Christ than to go on living, found in verses 21 to 23. Uh, I mean, he's very clear. He says, to die is gain. I desire to be... I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. He's making it really clear what he really wants to see happen. He he really wants to go to be with Christ. Um, So I'm a pastor. I end up being in hospital rooms quite often with sick and dying people. And I have discovered that this sentiment of Paul's, it's pretty prevalent around people who are sick and dying, who are facing the end of their life. They just want to go home to be with Christ. They have this deep desire to be with Christ. And they say with Paul, it is far better. I mean, when, when you're lying on your hospital bed suffering like that, it's pretty clear what would be better. It would be better to die and go to be with Christ. Uh, and I'm completely convinced that um, this, is, this is a healthy thing. Sometimes when, when, I, when people say this, you know, like, oh, I just want to go to, I just want this to be over with. I just want to be home with my Lord. People say, oh, no, they're, they've lost hope. They're, they've, they've lost the, the, the will to live. Well, of course they have. There isn't a lot of hope. And there isn't much to live for. It's pretty normal for them to want to be... For Christians, it's absolutely normal to want to go to be with Christ. Um, For the Christian wanting to go to be with Christ is not giving up. It's just a reality. (laughs) It's just true. It's a legitimate longing. But notice that while he thinks about heaven and being with Jesus is totally the best for him, he also muses that sticking around for a while is going to further the kingdom. 
It's going to provide time for fruitful service. You notice that? He's like, well, actually, but, you know, I know it's going to be better, but, you know, I, I, I need to stick around for a while. I am still can be of service for the kingdom of God. Um, but, you know, the people I know that are sick and dying, that, that are terminally ill in the hospital, they, they don't have this luxury of thinking, oh, I, I can have fruitful ministry. S- some of them are prayer warriors, and they can have a fruitful ministry of prayer warrior. But many, they, they are too, too, uh, under too much pain, too much sorrow to, to be praying for others. They, they, they can't concentrate. They're, they're in trouble. Uh, and, and so th- this, this argument that, oh, uh, at least I have something to live for, for good ministry, it doesn't, it's not for them. They don't have that. And so this desire to be with Christ is even stronger in them because there's no sense that at any time there's going to be fruitful ministry for them. Um, So when my father-in-law, my dad, my mother-in-law ended up in the hospital, there was no ministry that was going to happen after that. I know that. I, I was pretty convinced. I mean, they were dying. There wasn't any wondering about, oh, it would be better to carry on or to go with the Lord. It was definitely better for them to go to be with the Lord. There was no carrying on for ministry. There was only carrying on for the sake of life itself. That was it. Now, in verse 24, Paul says, it's more necessary for you that I remain. And I'm pretty sure that he was talking about because he's got to do ministry there. But I think that this actually is something that happens in the minds of those who are, who are dying, who are on life support or struggling to survive. They often are thinking about other people, and they, they do actually think that it's important for me to stick around so that I, you know, so you won't grieve over my death, you know, and this is a, a thought process. It's not really the thought process that was going on in Paul's mind, but it can be a legitimate reason for wanting to stick around, is just so that you won't cause the pain of leaving forever, uh, your loved ones. Um, so the point I'm making is that actually I believe it's perfectly fine to have a death wish as a Christian, to desire to die. That's not a problem. That is normal, actually. Um, But the question becomes, if there is no real ministry purpose, and all you have to look forward to is really the next life, not this life, because all that's left to this life is pain, suffering, and the dread of pain and suffering, Is it okay to actively seek death? That's the main question I want to answer today. Um, And I I know in our secular world, this has been uh, prevalent for many years. It it kind of started 30 years ago with Dr. Kevorkian. You you probably, if you're my age or older, you've probably heard of Dr. Kevorkian. He, He was also known as Dr. Death. And you see, in in 1990, he enabled Janet Atkins of Portland, Oregon. She was 54 at the time, early stages of Alzheimer's disease, and he helped her kill herself. 
by using his so-called Mercitron machine. And over the following three and a half years, he was present while 20 people used his machine to kill themselves. Um, and in response to this, the courts, the Michigan legislator passed a bill that it was a felony to physically assist in the act of someone committing suicide. And, um, and so Kevorkian carried on his work. And they, they say, the estimates are that he, he's, he enabled 130 people to commit suicide with his assistance. Um, in 93, physician-assisted suicide was legalized in the Netherlands, and soon a number of countries in Europe uh, legalized it. Many practitioners in the States and in Canada felt these, these legalizations of, of uh, 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 assisted suicide was completely against their role as healers, as people who uh, uh, did no harm. In fact, the Hippocratic Oath had a line in it that I will, I will give no one poison to end their life, nor will I encourage them to go on that route. It, it's one of the things that doctors in, down through the centuries since early Greek times uh, would, would state when they became pastors. Um, and even some proponents of euthanasia were condemning Kavarkian. Kavarkian uh, ended up being charged three times or, or found guilty three times, served three different uh, jail sentences. The last one was uh, eight years. He often would go on hunger strikes to kill himself in order to be taken out of jail. The first two times, that's what happened. Well, Canada was thrown into this debate around that time as well. If you remember, Robert Latimer decided that his severely uh, disabled daughter, Tracy, would be better off not suffering anymore. And so he took her out to his truck in the back of his farm, took the exhaust pipe in, put it in through the window, and killed his daughter. Because he said this was merciful. Instead of all these operations that she'd been undergoing and all the pain and all the horror in her life, this was merciful to her. And that he was motivated by love for his daughter. And so this threw Canada into a frenzy of debate on the subject uh, some saying yeah this is this is right this is merciful other people saying what we're going to now kill off all of the disabled people in our country what are you talking about that's absolute murder and there was this huge debate back and forth and on and on it, it went but many people believed that Robert Latimer had done the right thing that he had he had acted in love and had acted in mercy uh, and, and was ending her suffering. These events got people talking. Talking, and I'm sure being at people's bedsides. You see, these days with modern medicine, it seems like the death process, because we have so many things that can keep you alive, that this death process is being elongated. It's getting longer and longer time. And people are starting to go like, what is with this? I don't want to go through that. In fact, I've often said to my wife, when I'm 85, I'm going to take up skydiving because there's no injuries in skydiving, if you know what I mean. (laughs) 
Anyways, it's a joke. But the point is, I really don't want to go through suffering at the end of my life. I, I'd rather it be quick. I, I, I think that God blessed Jim McAlary. One day, he just uh, in November, he just fell over. And that was the end. And I'm like, yeah, Lord, please let that be for me. I'd like to just fall over and that be the end. Or fall, die in my sleep. I, 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 long, I love that. Um, but you see, what happened was people started pondering these things. And slowly on, public opinion turned from mercy killing being murder to mercy killing being something that maybe we should consider for those in particular categories that were really bad and really suffering and all these kinds of things. And so in 25 years, from the country being outraged at Mr. Latimer to uh, 2016, the government said this, that uh, they passed federal le legislation that allows eligible Canadian adults to request medical assistance in dying. Uh, this has been... Uh, shortened to made medical assistance in dying made, uh, and this is the, the 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 thing that is now in the Canadian books. 25 years ago, it was considered first degree murder. Now, if you're a doctor and object to it, you are required to refer your patient to someone else who will kill them. You're not allowed to say, "Oh no, no, I don't do that." and leave it there. That's quite a big change. And so what I've discovered is that Christians lag behind society by about 20 years in the change in their mindsets. And this, and so I know, I've, I've looked at the internet, I've seen the arguments by Christians saying, this is, this is good. It is compassionate to kill people when they are suffering so terribly. It's legal. It may be considered merciful. It alleviates suffering. So it is, some, is it something the Christian should seriously consider? This is our question for this morning. I mean, here in our passage, what does Paul say? He says, what should I choose? Key word, choose. You know, and sometimes people might use this saying, well, clearly Paul was saying you have a choice in the matter. Uh, clearly he's not saying that. If you look at it carefully, he's using it as a figure of speech. He's, he's, uh, he isn't suggesting that he has an actual choice in the matter. He's clearly using it as a figure of speech to emphasize that he doesn't know which is better, living or dying. He doesn't know which is better. But it's not going to be his choice, you know. It's the courts that are going to choose this for him. And he's not suggesting in any way that this is his choice. He's just saying, if I had the choice, I don't know what I'd choose. And we often do that in speech. It's just a normal way of expressing yourself. He's not saying you have a choice. And so let's not twist his words. In fact, Jesus made it very clear about Paul, Paul not wanting to go to his death. In, Matthew, in uh, John chapter uh, 21, verse 18, it says, Jesus said to, to, to uh, oh, this is to Peter. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting this mixed up. Never mind, I'll just pass over that. <laughs> 
I got my apostles mixed up there. Good thing I thought of that before I said it. <laughs> Anyways. Oh, what am I thinking? Messed up there. Do you ever get Paul and Peter mixed up? I do. I'm dyslexic. It happens. Sorry. Um, anyways, it's clearly not a, not a choice. What I'm, the point I'm making is that Paul is not suggesting that our living or dying is something we have a choice in. He's just emphasizing that if he had a choice, he wouldn't really know what to choose. But nevertheless, it does beg the question, can we act on our death wish and kill ourselves or ask medical assistance in dying as believers? Someone has pointed out that in the Bible, there are six people, and some, some say seven, who committed suicide. You know, Saul falling on his spear, and, um, uh, well, Judas, obviously, and, uh, and uh, of course, Samson, probably the most uh, obvious one. And, it, and they say that in all of these references, there's, there's nowhere where it says, which was evil in the sight of the Lord. There's no comment in any of them. In fact, when Samson kills himself, it's, kind of, it's almost given some esteem because when, when, he, when he kills himself, the Bible says that therefore he ki- in his death he killed more Philistines than in his life. And the Philistines were the oppressors of the Israelites. They were their mortal enemies. And so it's almost like a commendation to him. Way to go, Samson. In your death, you killed more people than in, uh, of the enemy than in your life. Now, what I have to say to that is, well, you know, there's a lot of what Samson did that uh, is a little questionable. It doesn't really line up with being, you know, a godly person. He still somehow got that hero status. But I'm not exactly sure that we can draw conclusive uh, conclusions from this story. Judges is filled with some rather unsavory stories that I don't think we were meant to emulate. So I, I don't think that means much, really. But the issue is, the Bible doesn't really comment on suicide assisted or not. It, it, it doesn't really say much about it. But this doesn't mean we can't figure it out for ourselves. I think the Bible is actually pretty clear about what is right and what is wrong when it comes to suicide. The bottom line is that suicide, assisted or not, takes the life of a person, a person that was created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Well, what does this mean, the image of God? Does God look like a a man? Um, well, that's one of the interpretations that people have used. But most scholars, most people, myself included, believe that the image of God represents that we have uh, personhood. In other words, we have volition, we have a thought process, we are self-aware, we're rational beings. This sets us apart from all of the other animals in, in God's kingdom. We are different from all of them because... We are in the image of God. He is a person. He has volition. He has the will to do things. Um, Psalm 49, 27 says, Truly no man can ransom for another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. This is this idea that human life is sacred. 
It's held in trust. When Jesus is talking about, you know, whether we worry about our lives, he, he points at the birds. And he says, you know, look at the birds. And he says, are you not much more valuable than they? And this is absolutely true. The value of a human's life is inestimable. Inestimable. Uh, that's a weird word. Uh, anyways, it's big. It's, it's huge. And so that's the main issue, that humans have intrinsic value that is greater than anything else on this planet. And it comes down to these simple commands that we find in the Bible. You've probably heard them. Do not kill. You know, do not murder. They're in the, the Ten Commandments in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. And, of course, they're also repeated by Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus says, you shall not murder. And Paul says, do not murder. Uh, so these are pretty simple com- uh, concepts. We're not to murder. Is suicide murder? Uh, yeah. It ends a human life. So I would say it's self-murder. Psalm 103. Know that the Lord, he is God. He who made us and we are his. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So the third, re- the first reason is we're unique. The second reason is God commands us not to kill people. That includes ourselves. The third reason that I believe that Christians ought not to take their own lives is that we, God made us, and therefore we are his. You know, when our kids were little, they loved to play with Lego. And two of my boys are near the same age. And what's, you know what's more fun than building with Lego? Destroying the Lego. Smashing it. It's awesome. And so this led to some tears in our house. Because one child would build it, and the other child would smash it with great glee. And so we laid down the law. The builder is able to destroy his own work, but thou shalt not destroy the work of another. (laughs) And that was the rule in our house. And uh, because that was just reasonable, right? And I think that rule is cosmic, God has created people, and God says when the time for their sojourn on earth is over. This is not to be determined by other people. It's up to God. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 to 20, kind of goes even further. It says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, the context of this is sexual immorality and that we ought to glorify God with our bodies uh, and not participate in sexual immorality. Um, But the principle is there, clearly, that we're not our own. We are, we've been bought by the blood of Christ. And so we, not only were built by someone else, by God, we were redeemed by God, the same person. And so he's got double ownership of us. We don't own ourselves. And in fact, it gets even clearer if you look at chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. It's absolutely clear. And, and this is where he's talking about the judgment of God. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Well, that's pretty clear, if you ask me. (laughs) That's uh, really clear. Um, In fact, in Ezekiel, God is really ticked off with the Israelites. And he chastises them. He says, you took your sons and your daughters, whom you have borne to me. You hear that? You took your sons and your daughters, whom you have borne to me. In other words, they're gods. And you sacrificed them to be devoured, to, to Moloch. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? That's to the gods Moloch. You see what God is upset about here? It's saying you don't have the right to kill your own children. You don't have the right to kill somebody else. These are my children. These are my people. You don't have that right. And so, God is the only one who has the authority to end life. Job 14, verse 5 says, Since his days are determined and the number... uh, Oh, I, I have it written better here. A person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits that he cannot exceed. I think that's the new... Or the uh, ESV, uh, I believe. But I love that. It, it's God. God sets it the time. He says, this is when you're going to die. And there's no one that's going to change that except God himself. And he determines these things. Uh, Jesus, Jesus said something similar. He says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? <laughs> it doesn't work that way. There's a determined date, and only God knows that date. Uh, And then the fifth reason that I believe it is not right for Christians to commit suicide, even if they're suffering from a terminal illness. Paul clearly portrays suffering as something that connects us with Jesus. He says, Jesus suffered, and when I suffer, I am joined with Jesus in suffering. And even in our passage in 1 Philippians in Philippians 1, sorry, he says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are now going through the same struggle you saw I have, and now hear that I still have. Suffering is not something that Christians need to escape from. Now, I am saying this as a realist. I've held my mother-in-law's hand a year ago while she screamed and yelled, for the pain in her life. I feel it was my duty to relieve her suffering as much as possible as I humanly could, but not to take her life, to care for her, to be with her in the hospital. As Gilbert Melanther said, although it may sometimes appear to be an act of compassion, killing is never a means of caring. So some people, and I, for a very long time, said, were, was very strong in this idea that we are sacred and God owns us and therefore human life needs to be extended for as long as possible 
by all means possible. And this is my firm belief, and I argued it with, in, in Bible college, I argued it. But when I became a pastor, I had to face this question about, well, can we not just let God do his thing and allow nature to take its course and let the person die? And I was, at the beginning of my ministry, I think even when I was first here, I'm not sure when my views started changing, but I thought, no, DNRs are immoral. I thought, this is wrong. But after watching people die over and over again, um, and knowing that there is a, a limit to, to people's death, and watching this strange thing happen that we are prolonging people's lives, but actually we're not prolonging their lives, we're prolonging their death walk. And, and, and we, we have machines that can pe- keep people breathing even though they can't breathe. We have machines that keep people's hearts pumping even though their heart cannot pump. And we have machines that just keep the shell alive. And in fact, you can, you can be brain dead and they can just keep your body going. And it's like, well, this is crazy. I mean, technology has just become indefinite about death. And so I've come to believe, uh, and this is my personal belief, but I, I do believe it quite strongly. I believe that we can entrust people to God and, uh, and that we don't have to take all, all means necessary to keep a, a, a life of pain and misery and suffering, a life that is going to end shortly, to just keep working at trying to keep this body alive. I don't, I don't think that's necessary. And the reason I don't think that that's necessary is because I believe all we're doing is prolonging death. We're not prolonging life. We're prolonging the death process. And, um, and out of compassion, we just turn it over to God. And, you know, sometimes God does miracles. Sometimes people who are on ventilators, they unplug the ventilator. And in very, very rare occasions, the person who they thought would die because the ventilator was keeping them alive, doesn't die. And God is sovereign. And God causes that person to remain alive. And so for these reasons, I believe that uh, DNR uh, orders are completely legitimate. You know, the Bible does have compassion on those who are dying. The, The Bible actually says in... In Proverbs 3, verse 31, verse 6, let beer be for those who are perishing and wine for those who are in anguish. Which leads me to believe that these days, the wise choice is to make the person comfortable. Uh, and if they need to be medicated, then medicate them uh, and allow them to be free from the anguish that is tormenting them, the physical pain and suffering that they're going through. We have that capability to do that. And I think it's perfectly legitimate for Christians to uh, be highly sedated if they're in terrible pain and suffering. Um, These things take wisdom. And so I just would like to pray for us. Um, This this process of going through this, this this came uh, through the crucible of my own life. Uh, watching three of my parents 
suffer and die. It seems to be the norm these days. Most people suffer for a long period before they die these days. And so this question is a real question. This is not just academic. It's real. And uh, so I hope you take these things to heart, search the scriptures yourself, and come to your own conclusions. I want to just pray for us. Father, we come before you today. We thank you for your spirit and that you guide us, that you direct us. Thank you for the sanctity of life, Lord, that you made us special. And we can see that specialness in everyone we see. I thank you, Lord, for, for those in our own congregation, at least in the past, who have had diseases for which people cause abortions. And Lord, I see you in those two people that I know of, Lord, who lived for you and, and cried out, I have a life worth living. And Lord, all life is worth living. All life is sacred. And so, Father, we just pray that you would cause us to understand these things and to operate in these truths with sincerity and in truthfulness as we, when we face the death of loved ones and the, the sickness and the illnesses that are around us. Lord, may we be faithful to you first and foremost. Uh, but, Lord, we also pray for your mercy in the lives of those we love. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.